The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 19. Since the beginning of chapter 18, so a couple of weeks ago for us, since the beginning of chapter 18, John, our author, has been guiding us uh, through the arrest and the various trials of Jesus. And what we've seen John doing as he's taken us on this journey is he's been carefully peeling back the, the, the surface of the way things seem to be. It looks like Christ is being overpowered here. And we've seen John's peeling back the surface in order to help us see the unseen reality of what's really going on. So when we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, it may have looked like the soldiers were arresting Jesus, but we saw that Jesus really arrested them. When we were in the high priest's house, it may have looked like powerful priests had Jesus on trial, but we saw Jesus as the all-powerful high priest, and he was really the one questioning, trying them. And even last week, as we encountered Pilate for the first time, it may have looked to us like Pilate and the entire kingdom of Rome, they're ruling over this situation, they're ruling over Jesus, but John is constantly telling us not to be deceived by what our eyes see. No, see the unseen king, Christ, he is sovereignly ruling over all things. Even last week he told us he's sovereignly ruling over all things down to the kind of death he's going to die. John's been begging us, do you see the unseen king? That's how we concluded our time together last week, pondering that question, asking ourselves that question, do we see the unseen king? And here's the deal, that question, I think that that is actually a very easy question for us to answer here, like in this place gathered together at Shades Valley Community Church, gathered together with other Christ followers around this table and around this cross, singing the truths of the gospel over one another, praying the truths of the gospel over one another. I think that right here in this setting, that, that this is the easiest moment of the week, at least for me, to say along with everyone else around me, yes, I see the unseen king. Christ, Christ is our king. I think that's easy for us to say in here. But what about out there? When we, when we leave this place and we're not surrounded by all the voices of our fellow Christ followers, but we're surrounded by, by voices that decry Jesus as foolish and false, does does that make us feel like fools who've believed something false? What, what about out, out there when, when we're surrounded by voices that declare allegiances to all sorts of other kings besides Jesus? Do, do we amongst that, do we feel the temptation to join in with their worldly worship of anything and everything but Christ? I think the central question when is, is, is this. The central question is this. When, when the world decries Jesus and declares other kings, who will we be left worshiping? That's the question that confronts us in John 19, verses 1 through 16. When everybody else around us is, is proclaiming something like verse 15, what we heard there from the lips of the chief priest, we have no king but Caesar. 
Like when everyone around us is proclaiming something like that, will we counter with, we have no king but Christ? Like who will we worship as the king of our life? Jesus himself has told us we can only have one king, one master. Everybody has one. Everybody serves someone even if they serve themselves. But we all only serve one who will we serve and worship as the king of our life. I think that John is confronting the readers and his readers, including us, with this question. I think he's confronting us with this question because he knows that all of us, as believers in Christ, are going to spend the majority of our lives surrounded by the world who decries Christ, who declares other kings. And so he asks us, in that setting, who will we be left worshiping? That's our question that I want us to wrestle with and to dig into this morning. And we start right in verse 1, because he begins confronting us with that question right from verse 1 of John chapter 19. As I said earlier, so far he's been helping us peel back the surface level of how things seem to be in order to see the unseen reality, to see Jesus is really king. But now, I think John actually steps back and asks us to look at the surface for just a moment. I think that through three different sets of eyes, John is basically going to say, here's what Jesus looks like to the world. Like Through the soldiers, through Pilate, through the priests, John is going to show us that the world sees Jesus as foolish and false and confront us with the question of when we're surrounded by that message, what do we see? So he starts out first doing this through the eyes of the soldiers. Look at John 19, verses 1 through 3 with me. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head. And they arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Foolish. Like to these Roman soldiers, Jesus looks like a fool. Greco-Roman culture had taught them what a king looked like. There was nothing kingly about Jesus. And they're right about that. Isaiah 53 and verse 2 prophesied that, said that he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him, and these soldiers don't. Like they've heard the claim that he's a king, that's how they mock him, but they don't even pause to consider his claims for a second. Like why would they consider something so blatantly foolish? And so they mock him as the fool they saw him to be. They'd been ordered to to flog Jesus. In fact, in all four Gospels, we know when we put the pieces together, we know that Jesus was most likely actually flogged twice. The Romans had various forms of flogging, three different forms, really, kind of a a lighter punishment, a medium, and a more severe. And typically, whenever we discuss the the death of Jesus from the Scriptures, we talk about the most severe flogging. It was known as the the verberatio. And the verberatio, the soldiers, they tie the person to a post, strip them of their clothes, and they take a whip made of leather tongs, and in those tongs are pieces of bone and various kinds of metals designed to flay flesh, expose bone and entrails. People died from the flogging a lot of times. Jesus did suffer that beating, but only after he'd been sentenced to die. 
Most likely, they would have inflicted that beating to try and speed up his death on the cross. Crucifixions could last for days if you put somebody up there in perfect health. But that's not the beating that's happening right here. Pilate is still in this mindset, we know from verse 4, he's still in the mindset of trying to let Jesus go. He's not going to let him go almost dead. The goal of this beating is to simply satisfy the crowd, make them feel sorry for Jesus, hopefully release him. This isn't the verberatio. This is the fustigatio, a less severe beating for lighter sentences. This is all the soldiers had been ordered to carry out. A light beating, but apparently that's not enough for them. They'd heard the charge. Jesus claimed to be king. And to them, that was hilariously funny. What a fool this man had to be. And so they make him look like a fool of a king. Twisted together, a crown of thorns, most likely out of a date palm whose thorns could grow up to 12 inches in length. They would have dug literally all the way down into his his skull, they wrap a tattered, probably an originally crimson soldier robe that's faded to kind of a purplish, tattered, torn. They wrap this around him, purple, the color of royalty. This is all mockery. And they stage a mock coronation where people would normally pledge their allegiance to their king. And they use words designed to insult instead of honor. They use their hands to hurt instead of to, to praise. They decried Christ as a fool who thought he was king. And with their words and with their actions, I think we hear them declaring, we have no king but personal pleasure. We have no king but personal pleasure. They don't care about the claims of Christ. They won't even consider the possibility that they could be true. All they care about is doing whatever they want in the moment that gives them the most pleasure. Their hearts are, are hard. It makes me think of the parable that Jesus told all the way back in, in Luke chapter 8 when Jesus tells this parable about soil and seed, four different kinds of soil. The seed is the word of the gospel cast upon these different soils. You've got a, a hard soil, a rocky soil, a thorny soil, a thorny soil and good soil. The hearts of these soldiers remind me of that hard soil where, where the seed, the word, doesn't even pierce the surface and the birds come and snatch it away. The representative of Satan who comes and snatches it away. Is that not the heart of these soldiers? They've heard the claims of Christ, but it doesn't even pierce the surface. That's what they used to mock him. Not even the slightest consideration of these claims. They sit on the surface. They're snatched away by Satan. They decry Christ as a fool and declare, we have no king but our own personal pleasure. Shades. Shades. How much of our Western culture, by Western I mean United States and Europe mostly, the inheritors of Greco-Roman culture. How, how much of our Western culture is currently hardened soil? No king but personal pleasure. And so any claim that threatens their reign over their own life can't even be considered. The claims of Christ have got to be dismissed as foolish. 
Not even worth considering. Laughable, mockable. This is how our culture treats, the cl- treats what we believe. Do you really believe that God, who created all things, took on flesh and became a man? Do you know how insane that sounds? Do you really believe in things like miracles? That he took five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000 people and then he walked on water like it was a sidewalk? This is the stuff we tell children. This is fairy tales. Do you really believe that this really old book is the very breathed Word of God? How can you be so foolish? Our modern Western culture that has its roots in the very Greco-Roman culture that first called Christ a fool hasn't changed at all still decries Christ as a fool and still declares we have no king but personal pleasure. Why Why would you give up pleasure to follow a foolish person like Christ? Why would you give up the things that could satisfy your heart's wants and desires for a Savior who can't satisfy? Single person, why would you give up the pursuit of anybody you want? Why would you give up the pursuit of sex however you want it, whenever you want it? For a Savior who's a fool? It looks foolish. Married couples, why are you going to stay in a marriage that's not making you happy? That's hard. Why are you going to fight for that marriage? Why are you going to sacrifice yourself and lay down your life for the good of the other and fight to save this thing? Don't you know that marriage is about your own personal self-fulfillment? And if it's not fulfilling you, you need to get out of that? Pursue your own personal pleasure? Why would you give up pursuing wealth, health, and happiness to follow a Christ who offers you a cross and could get you killed? He's been good at that. His track record is pretty great at getting people killed. I mean, his original 12 apostles, 11 out of 12. John died too, just in exile. It seems foolish to pursue a foolish person instead of personal pleasure. Why would you give up the things that you truly believe will satisfy you for a sorry-looking excuse for a Savior? Oh, shades. The world decries Jesus and declares other kings. Who will we be left worshiping? John doesn't just confront us with that question through the soldiers. He also does it through Pilate. Look at verses 4 and 5. Pilate went out again, and he said to them, to the priests, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Pilate's trying really hard to ride the fence in this whole situation. Between Jesus and and the religious leaders. It's even actually on display physically. He's got to keep going back and forth between Jesus who's inside his headquarters and the priests who are outside of his headquarters. And you can see in this back and forth his indecision. Who's he going to side with? Jesus or the priests? Jesus or the 
for the priest. And he's trying to play both sides. We see that right here in verses 4 and 5. Pilate believes Jesus is innocent, so why not let him go? Because he wants to play the side of the priest too. He wants to placate them. So he's had Jesus beaten, however lightly, and now he brings him out and declares, behold the man. We could get away with translating that, look at the poor guy. Like Pilate is saying to them, haven't we punished him enough? He thinks this will work. It doesn't. Verse 6, when the chief priests and the officers saw Jesus, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him and crucify him yourselves, for I find no guilt in him. Pilate knows they can't do that. That's not legal for them. He's frustrated. And he's basically saying, you came to me for judgment. I've given you my judgment. You won't accept it. Leave me alone. But they won't quit. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law. Leviticus 24.16 is what they're referring to. They've tried to get the charge of sedition to stick, of Jesus being a political insurrectionist. That hasn't worked, so they're going to move on to blasphemy. We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the Son of God. He's put himself on equal footing with God. It's blasphemy. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. I think a better translation, he was very afraid. And he entered into the headquarters again, and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Priests have been unable to get Pilate to charge Jesus with sedition, so now they try blasphemy. They're just throwing charges at the wall until one sticks. Pilate could care less about people blaspheming a God that he doesn't even believe in. That's not what scares him right here. What makes Pilate afraid is Jesus' claim to be divine. He didn't know Jesus had been doing that. You've got to understand, many Roman officials, officials they, they, they may have been cynical, but they were also very superstitious. And the Romans, they had kind of this ill-defined category of what they called divine men. Basically, people thought to possess godlike powers. And surely Pilate has heard at least one or two stories that Jesus has done some crazy stuff. Given sight to the blind, made the lame walk, healed lepers, brought the dead back to life. So having heard those rumors in combination with this claim, Pilate gets nervous. Unlike unlike his automatically dismissive soldiers, Pilate actually considers the possibility. What if it's true? And I just had this guy beaten. So Pilate, just a little nervous, takes Jesus back inside for some private questioning. He specifically asks, where are you from? In other words, are you from God? Are these claims true? Just like Isaiah 53 and verse 7 prophesied, Jesus was like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he opened not his mouth. Pilate's frustrated with this silence. And so he will say anything to get Jesus to talk. He brings out his biggest guns in verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know? that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered him, 
you would have no authority over me. Oh, hold up, Pilate. I know I've been quiet, but I can't let you be that mistaken. You would have no authority over me if it had not been given to you. The it right there does not refer to authority. Jesus is not saying, you would have no authority unless God gave you authority over me. That's true, but that's not what he's saying. The word authority in Greek is feminine, and the verbal form of the it right there is neuter. They do not agree. They're not referring to the same thing. The it right there refers to the whole situation. In other words, Jesus is saying, Pilate, you would not be in a position to have any authority over me at all were there not one with all authority orchestrating this whole sucker right now. Were there not someone with more authority who's put me right here in this place? You would have no authority over me were it, the whole situation, were it not given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Jesus isn't frightened by the strongest threat Pilate's got in his pocket. Pilate, you don't have any real authority in the situation. You wouldn't be in a position of authority unless this whole thing were given to you. God himself were orchestrating all of these events. Jesus is saying that the triune God is sovereign over this whole situation. Now that doesn't get Pilate off the hook. He's still responsible for what he does. We talk about it all the time. God is sovereign. We are responsible. He's still responsible for what he does. So are the priests. God being sovereign over this definitely doesn't get them off the hook. They're responsible, Jesus says, in an even greater way, for an even greater sin. They've been plotting and trying to orchestrate the murder of the sinless Son of God. Jesus is basically telling Pilate that he does have reason to be afraid in this situation. He's responsible for what he's doing. But he better not be mistaken for one second to think that he is sovereign here. So, will Pilate, who's on the fence between Jesus and the priest, who will he have more fear of? Will he have more fear of God in the flesh or of priests who appear to be powerful? Look at it, verses 12 and 13. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat, a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. Pilate finally sits down in the judgment seat. He takes his seat because he finally knows what he's got to do. He's got to condemn this man called Christ. Not because he thinks he's guilty. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that, guilty, that Jesus is, is guilty of sedition. He doesn't believe that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. It's not for any of those reasons that Pilate's going to condemn him. No, Pilate will condemn the king of the Jews because he Pilate has no king but preserving his own position. I think that's what his words and his actions show us. I think that's what it declares. He has no king but preserving his own position. The, the priests have pulled out their final threat. Sedition charge didn't work. Blasphemy didn't work. Fine. Pulling out the big guns. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. The Jews... 
History teaches us that the Jews at this time, they had complained to Tiberius Caesar before about Pilate. This wouldn't be the first time they filed a complaint in Caesar's complaint box. And how's, it gonna, how's this complaint going to look if Tiberius Caesar hears that Pilate let a rival king go? You've got to understand, Tiberius Caesar, he was a paranoid recluse. He lived most of his reign on the Isle of Caprice and didn't even execute most of his reign. Freaked out, lived in seclusion, and he was known for responding to rumors of treachery with, with brutal force. So here's Pilate, hands tied if he wants to keep his job, hands tied if he wants to keep his life most likely. If he wanted to remain in his position, he could not let King Jesus go. And so Pilate's words and actions decry Christ as king and declare he has no king but preserving his own position, his own place in society, his own reputation. I, uh, I'll never forget the day, it was probably six months ago or so, my family was headed into the Galleria. And for the first time in my life, I reached for one of my children's hand. I, I, she's not here, so I can tell you. My eldest, Karis, I reached for her hand, and she refused to hold it. It's official. I'm old <laughs> and not cool. One of my children did not want to hold my hand in public. And she is brutally honest, asked why. It's embarrassing. I was embarrassing. I was a threat to her reputation in front of people we didn't even know. I was a, a social liability. Now, the illustration is silly, but we all know the feeling that she was feeling. This, this pressure when something or someone or a person or a place or a room, something threatens our position, our popularity, our reputation, how we're perceived by other people, and we have no king but preserving our own position. This this reminds me of another soil in Luke 8. It reminds me of the rocky soil where the word of the gospel seemed to grow quickly, but it, but it withered away because it had no root. So it couldn't last through things like the sun beating down on it in harsh conditions. Jesus said these are those who in harsh times, they, they fall away. When, when the pressure is on and sticking with Jesus, holding him to his hand as it were, when the pressure's on and sticking with Jesus threatens your position, your life as it is, threatens the, the status quo, when following Jesus will cost you something because it calls you to a cross, and you walk away. Pilate is on the fence until pressure is applied. And then Christ is decried in Pilate's words and his actions declare, I have no king but preserving my own position. Oh, shades, yet again we find that following Jesus will make you look like a 
fool in the eyes of the world. Why? Why would you give up popularity, social position, and mobility to follow a person who looks so foolish, who's not associated with the elite of society and culture? That's becoming more true by the minute in our country. And it's a good thing for the church that Christ is not culturally popular will healthily kill cultural Christianity. And all that will be left are those who really love and cling to Christ. Why would you give up social position to go with one who looks so foolish? Shades, the world, when the world decries Christ and declares other kings, who will we be left worshiping? John's posed the question through the soldiers and through Pilate, and he does it one more, and I think the most important one for us. He poses it through the priests. Look at verse 14. Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It's about the sixth hour. It's noonish. And Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! crucify him the priests are in a hurry they're in a hurry to get jesus on the cross after all we just read in verse 14 that this is the day of preparation for the passover john tells us that it's about the sixth hour it's about noon ish they didn't carry around wrist sundials so everything's ish it's about noon ish and on the day of preparation for the passover now's the time noon is the time they're supposed to be headed to the temple to sacrifice their lambs for the Passover meal. And if you've been paying attention as we've been going throughout the Gospel of John at this point, you may be thinking, hasn't the Passover meal already happened? Didn't Jesus just eat that on the previous evening with his disciples? Yes. Yes, he did. So what's going on? You have to know a little bit of history. Galilean Jews, Jews from up north and Jews from the south, Judean Jews, they didn't keep time the exact same way. Many of them didn't. Many Galileans, like Jesus and his disciples, they counted the new day as beginning at sunrise. It's kind of how we do it. Technically midnight, but the new day begins at sunrise for us. Sunrise to sunset, that's a day. Jews from the south, the Judean Jews, counted the day from sunset to sunset. So, Jesus and his disciples, counting the day from sunrise, by law, they would have been required to sacrifice their Passover lamb at noon on Thursday. And they got to eat it before the night goes through. It's the rules of Passover. So, noon on Thursday. The month is Nisan. The date is 14th. Yet, the Judean Jews, like these priests, They counted the new day as beginning at sunset. So Nisan the 14th didn't start for them until sunset on Thursday. And they can't sacrifice their lambs until noon the next day and eat the Passover that day. And since there are so many Jews traveling to Jerusalem for the This festival and so many lambs, 6,000 plus, would need to be sacrificed. Temple authorities did not have much hesitation in accommodating two different timekeeping methods to spread things out a little bit more. 
Now, details aside, the point is that the priests were in a hurry to get Jesus crucified so they can go to the temple and sacrifice their Passover lamb. Do you feel the irony here? And they are willing to say anything to make that happen. Is that not what we see in verse 15? They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So Pilate delivered Jesus over to be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. Really? Like this coming from a people, I'm supposed to believe this, coming from a people who hate the fact that they are oppressed by Rome. They can't stand the Roman ruler right in front of them, much less Caesar. I mean, in just a few decades from this moment, they're going to revolt against Rome in 70 AD and get crushed. And I'm supposed to believe them when they say, we have no king but Caesar. Like, that may be what they say, but that's not what they mean. They're just willing to say anything to get rid of Jesus. What they are really saying here, I believe, is we have no king but our own perception of Christ. Stay with me. We have no king but our own perception of of Christ. This guy, Jesus, he claims to be the Son of God, the Christ, but that's blasphemy because we know what the Christ will look like. And it's not this guy, he's false. He's a stumbling block. Jesus may look like a fool to Rome, but to the Jews, he just looks false. He doesn't doesn't fit the image of the Christ that they were expecting. They, They wanted a Savior who would rescue them from Rome, who would be a political insurrectionist. They wanted a Savior who would restore the kingdom of of Israel. This reminds me of that thorny soil in Luke 18. Where even if the word grows for just a moment, it's choked out by thorns, by the wants and the desires that we have in this life. They didn't want an unseen king with an unseen kingdom. They wanted one very seeable. And Jesus did not fit their perception of what Christ should be. So they reject him. We have no king but our own perception of Christ. Shades, this is the greatest danger in our lives. These people claimed to have God as king. We do too. They claim to have God as king, but only on their terms. Only in their way, according to what they thought he should be, according to what they thought he should do. They wanted Christ to come, but only if he was the Christ of their own perception. This is such a huge, massive danger for us because we are a people who claim to have God as king. But is it only on our own terms and in our own way according to what we think God should be and should do? We want Christ, 
but only if he is the Christ of our own perception. Only if he thinks about love the way I think about love. Only if he thinks about human sexuality and gender the way I think about human sexuality and gender. Only if he thinks about money. He's got to be a capitalist or a socialist as long as he's thinking about it my way. I want Christ, but only if he's Republican or Democrat. Psalm 2 does not say kiss the donkey or kiss the elephant. It says kiss the sun. I want Christ, but only if he shares my voting values, no matter what a candidate's character is like. I don't care about having him, him having a unique voice that can critique every earthly kingdom, whether red or blue. I want him on board with my kingdom. I want Christ, but only if he will give me what I want and lead me where I want. But Shades, what happens when Christ doesn't give you what, he want, what you want? Doesn't lead you where you want? What, what happens when what he gives you and what he leads you to is a cross? That's what he does with every one of us. Mark 8.34 If anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and, and follow me. You cannot embrace Christ without embracing the way of the cross. What happens when he doesn't give you what, he, what you want, but he gives you a cross? What happens when he doesn't give you children? What happens when he doesn't give you a spouse? What happens when he doesn't let everyone that you love live as long as you want them to live? What happens when what he does give you is cancer? And what he does sovereignly ordain to come into your life is suffering? What happens when what he gives you is, is a cross? We cannot embrace Christ without embracing the way of the cross. But unfortunately, we only want to embrace the Christ of our own perception. It's so easy, shades. It's so easy for us to to carve up a Christ, to shape Him, to carve up a Christ who looks just like we do, who likes what we like and hates what we hate and values what we value, and then we're willing to worship that Christ who looks an awful lot like us. The Bible has a word for that. Idolatry. Anytime we carve God in our own image instead of being conformed to His image, that's idolatry. And it doesn't matter what block of wood you use, we use to carve our idol. Even if the block of wood we use is the Bible. I'll just shave off some Old Testament wrath passages that I don't like. Or maybe I'll just unhitch myself from the Old Testament entirely. Some preachers proclaim that we should do that. Not yours. Or maybe we can just shave off some of the New Testament, like, like some of the miracles. Things like the virgin birth. Who believes that kind of mythology? That stuff's embarrassing. And we use the Bible like a block of wood to carve out a Christ in our own image 
and worship Him. And when we do that and we come and we sing to that Christ and we raise our hands to that Christ, we are singing and raising our hands to ourselves. We are declaring, I have no king but me. That's the ultimate underlying cry of everyone that John has shown us in chapter 19. I have no king but me. Whether we look at the soldiers and their king of personal pleasure, or whether we look at Pilate, his king of preserving his own position, or whether we look at the priest and and their king of, of, of their own perception of Christ, in reality, they're all saying the same thing. We have no king but ourselves. I have no king but me. I'm king of my own life. Shades, what's our cry? We have no king but How do our words and actions fill in that blank? For the Romans, for the, Jew, for the Romans, Christ is nothing but a fool. For the Jews, he's nothing but a false stumbling block. What is he to us, shades? John has shown us how this world sees our king. How it still sees our king. And so the question hangs in the air. When the world decries Christ and declares other kings, who will we be left worshiping? And John has been providing the answer to that question since the beginning of this passage. He's been providing the answer he hopes that we have seen all along. You see it. We just walk back through it. The soldiers, they placed a crown of thorns on Christ's head and they beat him because they believed him a fool. But they symbolically acted better than they knew. For Christ came to bear for men and for women the curse of sin and death. Go back to Genesis 3. Look at the symbolism of the curse of sin and death. It was represented to a man by thorns that grow from the ground and to a woman by pain and childbirth and to Satan the serpent by his slithering. And right here, Christ takes on the thorns and he takes on the pain in order to bring about a new birth, a second birth for you and for me by crushing the head of the serpent, Satan, and setting us free. And he can do this. Why, why can he do this for you and for me? Because Jesus really is the man, as Pilate declared in verse 5. Behold, Pilate speaks better than he knows. Behold, the man, the true man, full man, fully human, able to represent you and me as he goes to the cross. But not just fully human, he is also the fully divine king with all authority, just like he told Pilate in verse 11. The fully divine king with sovereign authority. See that sovereign authority, authority evidenced by his sovereign timing in verse 14. At the very hour that the Passover lambs were supposed to be sacrificed, here stands Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, laying down his life as the true Passover sacrifice. And so Pilate says it best in verse 14 when he says, Behold your king shades when all the world decries christ and declares other kings who is it that we are left worshiping the man who is the king with sovereign divine authority we cling to christ 
Like the good soil in Luke 8, right? We cling to Christ, even if he makes us look to the rest of the world like false fools. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 22, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, false to the Jews, and folly to the Gentiles, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, to those who are called, Christ is not fake. He's the power of God. And He's not foolishness. He's the wisdom of God. So we don't decry Christ. We declare with 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake. That's just another way of saying we have no king but Christ. For all our lives. Amen. And amen.